time for our regular segment with uh, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. There's been a lot of talk about the Short-Term Rental Accommodations Act and the various implications. I've heard some people suggest it's akin to the government seizing property, and I know that you have some thoughts on it this week. Indeed, and that's a really interesting insight, and there's been a change in the law in Canada about that very issue. Uh, And so I expect there will be some form of legal challenge to this legislation, assuming it uh, passes, and this is probably the form it will take. And the background of that uh, comes from a proposition that's been around at common law for a very long time. There's a classic statement of it in a case that dates back to 1893. And the the principle there is that where property, real property, that's, uh, is uh, confiscated by the government, there is a legal presumption uh, that the intention of the legislature was to provide compensation for it, unless there's very clear wording that says, no, we're taking your property with no compensation. Hmm. Uh, and the, the classic statement of that uh, proposition comes from a case that's London and the Northwestern Railway Company. So it's a really old case. Mm-hmm. And really what it amounts to is sort of a, a principle of statutory interpretation, right? So the idea there would be sort of presuming that the legislature wants to act in a fair fashion and not deprive people of their property without fair compensation. Seems like a pretty good principle. Um, and uh, that principle is a particularly important one, uh, both in Canada and in the UK, uh, because in both both uh, Canada and the UK, there is no constitutional protection for property rights, hmm. um, unlike in the United States. Yes, uh, and so this this is sort of a protection for that as a matter of statutory interpretation and. The common law, one of the uh, really uh, good things about it um, is that it evolves over time to take into account uh, sort of changing uh, circumstances. And indeed, such an evolution occurred uh, by the Supreme Court of Canada just last year uh, in a case called Annapolis Group Inc. versus the Halifax Regional Municipality. And that case involved a company which uh, started acquiring property back in the 1950s near Halifax. And they eventually acquired 965 acres of land. And they intended to eventually develop the property. Uh, And indeed, the the property was uh, zoned in such a way uh, that it contemplated future development. The the language there they used was serviced development. And they made a number of efforts to try to develop the land starting in 2007, various proposals to the local municipality, which had no success ultimately. And then finally, in 2016, Halifax adopted a resolution uh, saying they were not going to initiate their what they called the secondary planning process, sort of what would be required to get municipal approval to proceed with developing this property. Uh, And indeed, this property, which was sort of undeveloped and had trees and so on on it, the uh, municipality started referring to it as a uh, parkland and uh, that's sort of where it sat. And the company sued uh, the municipality uh, in Halifax, saying that that process, saying we're not going to permit you to develop it, and suggesting that it could be used as parkland, 
uh, amounted to constructively taking the property from them. And the interesting thing about that argument is usually when the government is taking your property, it's going to be clear in the sense that, you know, they've taken your title away and built a road, yes. right? And then it's very clear, you've taken my property, it's now a highway, I, my house is gone, or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. But what happens when the municipality just says, well, we don't need to take your uh, property, we'll just call it a park and won't let you build anything on it? Well, you still own it, I guess, in some nominal way, but you could do nothing with it. And so that was the argument. And the when they were sued, the municipality was sued, they said, well, this has no chance of success. You, We haven't taken your property. We've just refused to allow you to develop it. Um, and that argument succeeded at the appeal level uh, in Nova Scotia. But it got appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada in the, this case. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada, the majority there, disagreed. Uh, and they found that there is a there is legitimate scope for regulation involving land. We're all familiar with that, right? Sort of you know, building codes or, you know, how big your house can be or, you know, you can't put a slaughterhouse in in downtown Victoria, whatever it might be, right? All kinds of regulations we have. But they said that there is a line between uh, effective you know, valid regulation uh, and when the regulation goes so far uh, as to, it, this is the language used, uh, interferes with the enjoyment of the property in a, substa- in a substantial and unreasonable way hmm. or effectively confiscates the property. And where the effect of that uh, is to virtually abolish any reasonable use, that's the language of the property, that amounts to a confiscation of the property and means that the owner could be entitled to compensation. Um, in the absence of clear language, which would say, we're taking your property and you're getting nothing, which of course would be pretty, um, you know, the Hugo Chavez, uh, you know, language saying the, you know, the government is coming in and taking your factory or whatever it might be. That would be probably some political response to the kind of clear legislative language that would be required to override uh, this principle, right? It would effectively amount to we're nationalizing your property without compensation, tough luck. Um, and no doubt there would be political uh, implications to that sort of a, uh, a high-handed approach. And so this case sort of shifts the uh, analysis from has the government taken it to have they uh, sort of gone overboard with regulations such that they've removed all, again, reasonable use of the property. Um, and so you could well imagine in the context of this short-term rental uh, legislation, uh, an argument being made about whether the degree of regulatory control over the property amounts to, first of all, that. And then second of all, and this is also a component of it in order to get uh, compensation for the effective taking of your property, there is a concept in this case which involves, there has to be a finding that some benefit has sort of public benefit has accrued, right? Hmm. Um, if they just said like you can't uh, put a slaughterhouse in and there was no particular uh, beneficial or benefit or advantage gotten by the uh, state, you, you likely couldn't uh, recover for that. But in the case, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada case, the sort of government or public benefit was this suggestion that by the municipality, well, this is just like a park. Go walk your dog, maybe off leash. Uh, and so 
that that was enough to constitute the kind of benefit that could result in uh, a finding that there should be compensation for the company. Uh, and so here, under the Short-Term Rental Accommodation Act, it's clear the government is saying, yes, there's public benefit to this. We're going to have uh, cheaper housing or more housing available. The same sort of benefit uh, that might uh, accrue by saying, you know, you can go walk your dog uh, in the uh, park we are preserving uh, by not allowing anything to be built on the land this person owned. Uh, and so on the language of this case, the uh, argument would be whether the effect of that act, right, mm-hmm. uh, has that public benefit element. That seems likely so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the issue would be, is this the kind of, uh, you know, a substantial and unreasonable uh, interference uh, with the uh, use of property such that you are effectively left with no other reasonable use of the property? Now, that could be an argument, right? You may say, well, you just rent that out. But you hear some owners saying, look, I've got some tiny uh, apartment that may not be subject to effective rental, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other thing to remember about all of this in this case, right, uh, is it is an example of how the law evolves and responds to, uh, you know, changes in uh, uh, circumstances over time, Right. When that that original uh, case they referred to from more than a hundred years ago uh, came out, right? You, you that would have been a time when you you wouldn't have had the same sort of uh, you know regulatory control over what people can do with their property, right? Which is not something that's existed always and forever, right? The idea of uh, zoning and bylaws and so on we're all used to them now, but. Those didn't always exist. Uh, they are, uh, and the degree to which they exist is a relatively modern phenomenon. And so this case from the Supreme Court of Canada is an example of how, right, there can be uh, adjustments of the to the common law to achieve generally what would, uh, uh, this is one of the beauties of law, right, is generally the law is going to try to come to a, an outcome which people would broadly think to be fair and sort of in you know compliance with community values right and sort of the idea that you know the legislature is going to presume not you know we're going to presume the legislature isn't trying to unfairly confiscate people's property we're going to have a strong presumption to the contrary um, is an example of that mm-hmm. and, and this shows how that can evolve and well I don't I can't predict what the outcome uh, would ultimately be to a, a challenge saying uh, to the kind of restrictions that are proposed by that Short-Term Rental Accommodation Act legislation, I can well imagine, uh, reading this case, uh, that there would be at least a uh, an argument to be made uh, about uh, whether uh, absolute whether an absolute prohibition on renting out uh, property for a short-term uh, uh, rental uh, could, uh, at least arguably, amount to a substantial and unreasonable uh, interference with property rights. And on the language of this case, uh, you would then have to have an argument about whether there was any other reasonable use for the property. And you would then have an argument about whether uh, the government has taken some uh, benefit for itself uh, or some public benefit. And that part uh, at least seems uh, to be uh, made out on the way the Supreme Court of Canada analyzed it in this case. Um, So uh, we'll have to keep an eye on this and see how that uh, plays out. Of course, all of this is subject to all the usual 
political machinations of uh, you know condo kings and yes. uh, you know changes in government and all of that. So it may well be there's some political uh, response prior to there being a, a legal analysis. But the case demonstrates that you know there may well be a legal analysis to be uh, had or a legal argument to be had hmm. about whether what the government's doing. Uh, yeah, it can be done without uh, compensation under that uh, act as it's currently written. Fascinating. I have somebody texting me just for confirmation, the style of cause of this case. It's Annapolis Group Incorporated versus Halifax Regional Municipality? Correct. And the site for it would be the neutral citation from the Supreme Court of Canada is 2022 SCC 36. Um, so if you type that into Google or you went to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada website, uh, or you go, there's another free site people may be interested in called Canly, yes. uh, which uh, is a, a site that uh, allows you to get access to uh, all uh, decisions that are reported, and it's free. Uh, the website for that is www.canlii.org, and that allows you to put in like a case name uh, or the kind of citation that I just read, or even uh, text from a case to find it. And then the other interesting thing about it is if you find a case on Canly, it also allows you to uh, click on a link and see other cases that have considered it, right? Like since this Supreme Court of Canada case in 2022, no doubt there would be other trial decisions and courts having to wrestle with, well, what does this mean and how should we interpret it? And so you'd be able to read those as well to try to get a sense of how courts are handling it. This particular case, the outcome of the Supreme Court of Canada decision was to send the case back for trial uh, in Nova Scotia, and there can then be a trial and evidence-led uh, to uh, sort out uh, whether uh, the particular scheme there, not allowing the company to develop this property, uh, meets the uh, legal test that the Supreme Court of Canada is set out. Um, so anyway, that's a, it's a useful site. It used to be you had to pay to get access to uh, case law like that, uh, which wasn't great. Uh, and uh, this uh, system is uh, run by uh, the Federation of Law Societies. So all the law societies across the country uh, contribute money to pay for it, and it provides access not only to lawyers but the public. So you can go there and read uh, all of the decisions and read uh, uh, how they've been considered since. So that's Canley. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll continue right after this break. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, Michael, up next, a credit card company, an appeal, a default judgment, and attempted collections. How does it all fit together? <laughs> this is how it fits together. So this is a case that was brought by Capital One, uh, who had issued uh, MasterCards to a couple, uh, and uh, Capital One uh, alleged that this uh, couple didn't pay their MasterCard bills. Uh, they were pretty big bills. When you total them up here, it was $50,000 just shy of. So that's a pretty good MasterCard. Wow. Uh, and the way uh, the way it works is they were the company, Capital One, was suing these people in provincial court, small claims court, to try to recover the money. Uh, and the first step in that process is you need to uh, serve the person with uh, notice that you're suing them so they can respond to it, right? Yes. Uh, and the provincial court rules try to make that a little easier than how it would work in Supreme Court to try to make it cheaper and more uh, user-friendly, basically. Mm -hmm. And the rules provide that you can serve somebody using registered mail. That's one of the ways you could do it. Uh, and registered mail would ordinarily involve... Uh, 
you know, the letter being delivered to you that you signed for. And so they'd be able to say, okay, well, we are trying to prove that you got notice of this thing in that way. Here, Capital One uh, sent out the notice using Express Post, uh, which is a a service by uh, the the, post office. But it tracks the delivery of something, but doesn't require a signature for it. And so what happened is they sent out this notice, uh, and I guess the tracking showed it got delivered to the mailbox, uh, and then there was no response to it. So Capital One was able to get default judgment. And default judgment is what happens when you get sued and don't reply, right? The other side wins. Yes. And then what happened is the uh, couple, when they got served, they got personally served with the uh, notice of the default judgment, because I guess Capital One then wanted to get on with uh, collecting their money. And the couple applied in provincial court to set aside the default judgment. And they showed up in court. Uh, at that point, they had a lawyer helping them. Uh, and they said, we didn't get that. <laughs> we didn't get the notice. Yeah. Uh, we don't know what happened to it. We never received it. And as soon as we got notice, here we are. Uh, but to set aside a default judgment, you need to also show that you have some potential uh, defense to the case, right? So, well, why should you now have a trial? Yes. And one of the arguments they made was, Well, the provincial court rules also require that if you are suing somebody in provincial court, you need to do so in the court registry, which is nearest to where the defendant lives or carries on business or the transaction or events that resulted in the claim took place. And the couple said, we live in Surrey. They sued us in the downtown Vancouver court registry. There's a court registry in Surrey. You sued us in the wrong one. And they made that argument in provincial court, and the judge there didn't have any time for it. He basically said, no, we're not setting aside the default judgment. Mm. And so the couple appealed that decision to the B.C. Supreme Court. Uh, And it's an interesting decision. First of all, the Supreme Court judge who heard the uh, judicial review of the provincial court decision didn't take kindly to the uh, reasoning of the provincial court judge. One of the interesting things about the decision is the Supreme Court judge names the provincial court judge four times in mm. his, in I think it's his, analysis of the decision, uh, which is kind of unusual. Yes. Most of the time, just as a matter of sort of maybe courtesy, it's sort of, a, you don't usually on the appeal have the judge repeatedly named. I mean, if you want to figure it out, you could go to Canley. We just talked about it, click on the earlier decision. Yes. Uh, but in this case, the Supreme Court judge took the time to personally name the provincial court judge four times and criticize the judge saying, look, uh, this wasn't adequate in terms of reasoning and your decision was unreasonable uh, and found that um, uh, the uh, couple ought to have their uh, day in court. Uh, The other thing which was interesting there is you can tell that the counsel for Capital One was obviously a bit concerned about the possible implications of this. He had filed an affidavit saying that over 15 years he had commenced 500 claims, presumably for Capital One credit card companies, he described as my clients, Mm -hmm. from this downtown Vancouver provincial court registry. Uh, and used express post and got default judgments. Hmm. And so no doubt Capital One is, or at least counsel for Capital One, is going to be a little worried now that you've got a Supreme Court uh, judgment finding that it was unreasonable uh, to uh, not allow this uh, argument uh, about whether the couple was served properly and as well uh, with respect to uh, service being effective by using express post without a signature 
saying, you know, it's just not clear that's registered mail. And these people say they never got it. And when they did get something, they showed up right away. Um, and so the result here is going to be for both this couple and perhaps others um, uh, who are being sued in that way, uh, they will have an argument to, to be made. And it will be interesting to see what the outcome is. And probably in the course of things, there are only going to be a few crocodile tears for Capital One MasterCard. Uh, and so uh, this is a perhaps a, a victory for the uh, uh, couple and maybe the uh, all, all the people that might be in that uh uh, position and so the couple uh, will have the default judgment set aside, uh, and they will get back uh, and get to have their uh, their day in court. We have just over two minutes left. The next story is an interesting one. You think we can do it? Yeah, I think we can. So the, the last story for the day it's out of Surrey, uh, and it's a, a case involving a, a couple who built a home uh, and then just kept on building. <laughs> in addition to building the home. Uh, they built what were described as two structures, uh, which were two stories tall uh, and contained uh, at least two rental apartments. While they were building these additional structures, I guess the building inspector noticed and said, you don't have permits for these structures, stop building, and came out and put stop work orders up, stop building these things, which were then just ignored. Uh, and the couple wound up uh, constructing uh, these uh, sort of uh, add-ons to their house, which they then rented out. And so uh, this was an application brought by the city to have the uh, add-ons destroyed. <laughs> uh, and the uh, couple argued against it, saying, well, hold on. One of the things they uh, cited was the British Columbia uh, homes for People, an action plan to meet the challenge of today's today and deliver more homes for people faster. Mm. Uh, and they said, look, yeah, we, there's not enough housing. Uh, an order to demolish uh, our additions here uh, is excessive, and particularly in the context of uh, providing rental units, which were indeed rented. And, but uh, that did not carry the day. Uh, the judge concluded there was no way to retroactively get permits for these structures because they were too close to the property line, way over the maximum amount you were allowed to build. And even though the result of this was going to be at least two people getting evicted uh, and the uh, rental accommodations uh, knocked down, uh, the judge found you just can't countenance people ignoring the stop work orders, building the things anyways and renting them out, uh, and found that uh, there was just no way uh, that these things could be retroactively approved. Uh, there was no way to inspect them, and even if you could properly inspect them, they were just way too big and too close to the property line and every other problem. Uh, and so uh, that's the result, and I guess the uh, the life lesson there is when you get the stop work order uh, for building something, stop, uh, lest you uh, wind up in a circumstance where you're actually ordered to knock it down. So two less rental houses in Surrey, uh, they should have gotten the permits. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers Legally Speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day.